1007 from Reach Out 74 Conference at Montreat, North Carolina. Our speaker this morning is Jamie Buckingham. Now see, that's the, that's the logic of the post office department. Earl White works for the post office. And they take a guy like that who could solve all the postal problems in the world and put him in a little post office down there in South Carolina. We ought to have him in Washington. <laughs> well, Father, we ask you to anoint what we do this morning. We come ahead of time asking for this, Lord. You know how prone we are to go ahead and do something and then ask you to approve it. But we ask you this morning ahead of time to anoint it so that only that which you want will happen, only that which will be for your good pleasure will come to pass. Only that which will glorify you and your plan in our lives will be said. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There are many messages going out these days on what God is doing. And I'm preaching some of them. I enjoy uh, reporting on what God is doing. And it's popular to speak on last days these days also. That's a very popular thing. It's popular to write about it. If you don't believe it, just ask Hal Lindsey. But I want to draw your attention this morning to a last day's scripture found over in 2 Peter, the third chapter. which I believe kind of sums up what the Lord would have us look at in these last days. In the third chapter of 2 Peter, there is a descriptive passage of what's going to happen in the day of the Lord, whenever that is. There are some who believe that that's going to be before the thousand-year reign, others uh, after the thousand-year reign. Then there's some like me who are confused as to how long the thousand years is. But anyway, someplace in the midst of all of this, it looks like that things are going to be destroyed. Second Peter 3, 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now, usually we read that far, and then we stop, and we say, oh, what are we going to do? But I want you to read on, where Peter says, seeing them, 
that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Now, I want to speak to those this morning who are here, only to those of you who are aware of personal inadequacy. I want to speak only to those of you who realize that you are falling short of God's highest plan for your life. Now, if you don't fit that category, I would like for you to come counsel me after the meeting this morning. <laughs> and if you don't fall into that particular bracket, you can slip out now and leave your coat in your seat so that somebody won't steal it for the Catherine Kuhlman meeting this afternoon and come back in a little bit. Because um, it's the others that I want to speak to this morning. I want to challenge you this morning in a personal way to rise to the highest plane that God is calling you to. I'm concerned about Christians, people in the kingdom, who are never willing to become who God is telling you to become who become satisfied with your inadequacy, who become, who become satisfied with second best and remain on that level. I believe that the Holy Spirit has come not just to prepare the church for the last days, but I believe the Holy Spirit has come to do something in us and for us, uh, to challenge us, to, to tune us, to tune our personalities uh, to the very finest. You see, you see, God does not intend for us to be globs in the middle of a glob. I believe God intends for each one of us, and I'm speaking to those of you who are here right now, to those of you who are listening to me, I believe that God intends for us to be like instruments in a great symphony orchestra, that this is the whole meaning of the body of Christ. And each instrument needs to be tuned separately. I want you to, I want you to somehow, some way, Find out who you are in God's great symphony orchestra. Now, we can't all play the same instrument. We're not all the same instrument. Every one of us has a different function in the body. 
And we're not to pattern ourselves nor to tune ourselves after someone else. We're to be tuned individually. Have you ever been to the concert? And before the concert starts, you hear the symphony down there making all kinds of weird sounds in the orchestra pit, blowing and strumming and stringing and doing all the things they do. And it sounds like bedlam. Sounds like chaos. And then along comes the conductor and he goes tap, 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 tap like that. And then he goes and there's music. Now, I believe that what's going on today, Bob described it uh, last night as the bones coming together. Well, when bones come together, there's confusion that goes on in the midst of this because, see, these bones haven't been together in a long time. And it's quite possible to get an ankle bone that's attached to the ear bone, you know. <laughs> and that causes confusion. I know some people like that. I know some people who think they're supposed to have seven tongues, see? They got them all the parts mixed up. But God is bringing the parts together. Then he separates them and he brings them together and separates them. And pretty soon we're going to come together the way God intends for us to come together. You put life in a foot and that foot's never had life before and that foot's going to join itself to the first thing it can latch on to, whether it's an elbow or whatever else it is, see? And so the body is coming together, each one in our separate places. And, and this morning I want to challenge you to find out who you are and to be willing to play the role that God intends for you to play in the body, to, to be the instrument that God intends for you to be in this great symphony called the church, which is, which is coming together. Some of you will be a clarinet. Somebody else will be a trombone. There'll be a whole section of you who'll be strings, all different kinds, strumming strings and plucking strings and all different kind of strings. Some of you will be, will be drums, that's okay. God needs a few drums, just a few. <laughs> I was in a Salvation Army church in Tulsa, Oklahoma several years ago. We were having a charismatic meeting in the Salvation Army Church. And uh, we didn't have any kind of instruments at all. And there was a precious old Salvation Army man sitting down there, about 78 years of, old, of age, in a old wrinkled blue uniform. And he had a huge bass drum in between his knees. And we sang our choruses to the tune of that bass drum. Boom, boom, boom. Every chorus had the same tempo. <laughs> and he got so excited with that bass drum that even after we would finish singing, why, he would continue to play his drum just right on into it. See, like it. Well, after a while, that became kind of a precious thing. I just kind of sat back and enjoyed it, watching that old brother do his thing down there with the, with the bass drum. But how much better it would have been had we had a whole orchestra surrounding him, everybody in tune, rather than just that one instrument. Now, you see, I know that God sometimes puts just one instrument in a community uh, to spark life into that thing. Maybe it's just the, the tiny sound of the clarinet or the sweet sound of the violin, or maybe it's the blowing of the trumpet, or perhaps it is a bass drum that God puts in some, in some community to start the music going. 
But we're not to be satisfied with just the one sound. God is bringing his body together. And I believe this is the function and purpose of the Holy Spirit, to to allow us to become who we are supposed to become. Holy Spirit has not come to turn us into robots. The Holy Spirit has not come to possess us. It's demons who possess us and turn us into, into robots. The Holy Spirit comes to fill us and to fulfill us into God's highest plan for our lives. You see, I don't believe that the Lord God wants to destroy our personalities. I believe he wants to tune our personalities to the finest pitch that every one of us should be different. I don't want every one of you believing the same thing. That is, unless you can believe like me. (laughs) Because I'm right, of course. (laughs) But I think that there is help in each one of us having a different shade of belief here and here and here and here. I talked to a friend of mine, a charismatic pastor, the other day said that he had had to discipline a woman and said that if she didn't stop her heresy, they were going to have to put her out. And I said, well, what's the trouble, brother? And he says, well, she's a a mid-trib. And he says, of course, I'm a pre-trib like Jesus was, and we just can't have this heresy in our church. And I said, brother, what would you do with a guy like me who doesn't even know when the trib is? You see, I believe that it's healthy for us to have these different shades of of belief and faith because it, it comes through our personality. And as we come together as the symphony playing, we're going to hear the truth. That is, as long as we're listening to, to one another. So I believe that the Holy Spirit has come to make us partners with Jesus Christ and to give us a new and an exciting purpose in life. And I think that's part of what Peter is talking about here. He says, don't get all uptight about these last days. He said, it's far more important who you are to become as the last days approach, seeing what manner of men you will be. Don't spend all of your time reading about the fire falling and the mountains coming down and and the the temple being blown up and rebuilt and all this kind of thing. I guess that's exciting. But I want to encourage you to live for today, not for what's going to happen day after tomorrow, nor for what's going to happen 30 years from now, but what kind of people are we to be today? Let's, Let's fulfill God's purpose in our lives today. Eight years ago this fall, I guess it was just about this time of year, maybe, a little before. I found myself in a a giant retreat house up at Rye, New York, old Wainwright house, as a guest of Dr. Norman Vincent Peale. And we, there was about 20 of us sitting around the, the living room. It was a beautiful setting and the walnut panels and the fire in the fireplace and the fall colors on the outside. And my life had reached one of those empty places 
to where I didn't know who I was anymore. You remember Bob's beautiful description the other night of how God rings you out like this? Well, I, I had been through that. I mean, the last drop had fallen. And all I was was just an empty sponge, a wrung-out washcloth, and somehow or another God knew in his time that I was to be where I was to be. And, and I was ready for what Dr. Peel was going to say as he, in a very brief, simple message, challenged those of us who were there to find out what God's plan was for our life. Now, he catched it in the phrases of, of ambition. What kind of ambition has God put in your life? But it was the thing that sparked and opened the door for the Holy Spirit to come into me. And I realized that as long as I was looking at myself negatively, as long as I was looking at myself as worthless, as long as I was looking at myself as full of lack and inability, that God was not going to be able to deal with me, that I needed to open myself up and to realize that I could become who God wanted me to become. And I want to challenge you today to open your lives to become who God wants you to become. As long as I can remember, I've been challenged by people with purpose, by by people who dream impossible dreams and attempt impossible tasks. Now, people like this may not always give the glory to God, and I, that doesn't bother me. They, be, they become like the CBs. Remember how the CBs were during the Second World War? They did things simply because the situation demanded it. Well, I'm not threatened by people like this, even when they don't give the glory to God, because I happen to believe that all greatness... Even human greatness has its roots in God-likeness. That God himself, who is, the, who is the greatest of all, instills within each one of us a little bit of himself, that little flame that the Quakers talk about. And if that, if that bit of himself is activated by Jesus Christ, then God gets the glory. Otherwise, men receive their rewards uh, here on earth. And so we have... We have people all over the earth who down through history have been people who have built things for their own glory. They have done impossible things. A man may build an institution and give his life for it. It may be a, may be a hospital. It may be a church building. I have some preacher friends of mine who have built church buildings and have given their lives for it and have taken their glory and have received their reward here on earth. That doesn't bother me because I believe that even within them is the greatness of God that has sparked them on and inspired them to this. Others I know have written impossible music scores or they have become great artists or creative people. I believe that in every person who does the impossible thing is the incentive of God that has driven him on. Maybe a Columbus who dares to sail the ocean uh, even knowing that there's a good chance that that earth may be flat and he'll just sail over the side of it. It may be somebody like Sir Edmund Hillary who climbed Mount Everest, he said, just because it was there. I'm inspired by people like this. I'm inspired by a Louis Pasteur who will spend a lifetime searching through slag piles believing that there is radium in there uh, that, will, that will help mankind. Or by a man like Charles Fulton 
who, who dares to risk all the wrath and the ire of others because he believes that he can make a, a boat run by steam. Or a man like Alexander Graham Bell, who invests everything that he has, every penny he has, risks all on a, on a basic concept that man's voice can be carried over a wire. Now, you see, I believe that it's God who inspires people to do things like this. They may or they may not give the glory to God. But I'm inspired equally by those who do impossible things. Now, I'm more excited about those who do the impossible for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of God. Let me show you a passage of Scripture, Matthew 14. Matthew 14. Let's begin with verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, this is after midnight, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were afraid, they were troubled, saying, it's a spirit, an evil spirit, and they cried out for fear. Did you know that even the disciples said that Jesus was a demon sometimes? And they cried out for fear, but straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, come. Now, I've read through this passage time and time again, and I've finally reached the conclusion that Jesus was not just talking to Peter here. I believe he was talking to that whole boatload of people. And I think he was saying, come on, fellas. Over the gunnels, come on. Come to me. Walk on water. But Peter was the only one who had the, who had the drive, who had the boldness, who had the initiative. And so Peter, Peter who, who came down across the side of the ship and walked on the water to go to Jesus. And in verse 30 it says, And when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? You see, I find out that when Jesus says walk on water, you can walk on water. I am excited about the impossible things that Christ is calling us to do in these days. And I want you to be excited about them too. Dangerous? Sure. Listen, we're off into spiritual areas that could cost you your life. Did you know that? I've talked to half a dozen pastors here over these last two days while we've been here who have told me honestly and candidly, if I follow through on what you men are preaching, it will cost me my career. It will cost me my church. And I've said, go to it, brother. Hallelujah. It's better to lose everything than not to attempt to do the impossible for the glory of God. See, I think God is calling us to walk on water. 
in areas to where we have never, never, never stepped out before. I believe he's calling us to do the impossible in areas spiritual and, yes, in areas physical at the same time. I have no problem with that because I believe that even though a thing may be dangerous, even though it may border on the fatal, that God wants us to do something for his glory, even if it kills you. I believe every person born of God is born with some kind of inner desire within him to create and to achieve and, yes, to leave behind something meaningful. Several years ago, I, I read about a man uh, who, had, uh, who had listed the 100 things that he wanted to do before he died, and they were exciting things. They were, they were things that were impossible things. He wanted to scale the Matterhorn. Uh, he wanted to, uh, to write a book and have it published. That's an impossible thing. He wanted to, he wanted to go on a lion safari to, to Africa and to sing in Carnegie Hall and to paddle the length of the Amazon in a canoe and to sign up as an Indian in a cowboy and Indian movie and all these kind of exciting things that all of us would like to do, but we never do dare to do it. Well, he was 68 years of age at the time when I read about this, and he had accomplished 92 of those 100 things. Now, I tell you, I'm excited about a man like that. He may or may not give the glory to God. That's his problem. I'm still excited about a person who has some goals and some purposes in life and says, I will do this. Now, he may say, I'll do it in the strength and the power of God and give the glory to Jesus. Or he just may say, by my own grit and will, I'll do it, but I'll do it. Nothing is going to turn me aside from the task that God has called me to do. The late Dawson Trotman, whom some of you have had contact with, who was the founder of the Navigators, used to set up what he called difficult but attainable goals for each new year. And so at the beginning of each new year, he would say, this year, I'm going to learn how to speak a foreign language. This year, I'm going to learn how to play the organ. This year, I'm going to master the art of uh, skiing or ice skating or something else. Uh, difficult but attainable goals. And the way he did it was the same way he was able to memorize Scripture and to teach others how to memorize Scripture by discipline, by being what Peter says, diligent unto God. If there is any kind of accusation that has been thrown against the charismatics that makes me cringe because I sense that it may be accurate, it's the accusation that charismatic people are not diligent. They don't put a root down. They become flighty. They go here and here and here and here. And all across the country, I keep hearing coming from my non-charismatic, non-spirit-baptized pastor friends who are saying, we can't trust these spirit-filled people because they go from this place to this place to this place. They don't put a root down any place. 
They're not under submission to any kind of pastor or any kind of elders, and if, if they don't want to receive the correction we give them, they just go someplace else until they find somebody who will agree with them. That bothers me, church. And I'll tell you why it bothers me, because it's accurate. That's why it bothers me. And God is calling upon us to be diligent people. Whatever thy hand finds to do, do it with all thy might to the glory of Jesus Christ. Achieve, create, conquer, do the impossible. It seems to me that those of us in the kingdom ought to be more willing than anybody else to dare to do that which seems to be impossible, to, to dare to step out and to pay the price and to put it into action and to, and to walk on water. The most exciting people I know are these who have left the comfort and the security of their home and have turned their backs on well-paying jobs and worldly fame and have gone to the remote areas of the world to carry the message of Jesus Christ. This is what has so excited me about this book that we've, that we've been promoting here, this Into the Glory, this book on the men of the jungle aviation and radio service, because here are highly skilled technical people who have given up everything they have had to go off into an area to do something that's impossible for the glory of God. And if you had landed on some of the airstrips that I've landed on in the mountains of the Philippines, it's an impossible task. I flew in there with an airline pilot in the back seat of one of these little planes, and as we were getting ready to land, the airline pilot said, you can't get it down there, it's impossible. And the pilot just grinned and said, watch. <laughs> and that guy said, I'm not going to watch. And he went just like this. <laughs> I tell you, I'm excited about people who are willing to die for Jesus Christ and say, because I've got a load of Bibles in the back of this plane and there's people down there who don't know the Word of God, we're going to get it on the ground. We're going in. And so they do the impossible for the glory of God. And some of them die on foreign soil, but the price of death is so very small when compared to what you have purchased, not only in satisfaction, but by God's approval. Now, there is a place in the Christian community for the dreamer. I want to challenge you this morning to stir up the dreams that God has put within your heart. Those, those childhood dreams, those dreams of early years when you were young and innocent and sophistication had not moved in and you had not learned the logic of adulthood to say that things are impossible, when you could come simply as a small child to do the impossible, I want to challenge you this morning to put those dreams back into action because I believe that God never puts a desire in our hearts. I don't think God ever beckons us to walk on water unless he intends for us to step out on our faith and to at least make the attempt. You see, whether we achieve or not is almost immaterial. The passing of the test lies in whether we try or not. That's what thrills me about Simon Peter. Not that he walked on water but that he threw his legs over the side of the boat and said, Lord, here I come. And I want to say, go to it, man. Hallelujah. Sink to the glory of God. See? 
And this is what I'm telling my pastor friends. Get out there on the water with the rest of us. You may sink. You may walk. It's totally immaterial as long as you do it to the glory of God. You see, I just happen to believe that even if you sink, that there's the strong arm of the Lord there to pick you up. And I don't believe God will let you go under. But that's one of the risks you have to run. That's the whole concept of faith is getting out there where unless God does something, you've made a jackass out of yourself. I think about the people that Jesus challenged here on earth. Men who had never walked, Jesus said, rise. Take up your bed and walk. The impossible. Here's a man who has never seen before. And Jesus spits on the ground and makes some mud out of it and wipes it on his eyes and says, now, fiddle your way down that lane to the pool of Siloam and wash it off and see what happens the impossible to men who had never done anything but throw their nets out into the water and draw them back in to try to fish jesus said go into the uttermost parts of the earth and become my men i tell you something that thrills me because that's the call that's going out today and nothing sparks me any more than seeing a man who's got a third grade education who's never done anything in his life except be a bicycle mechanic like Tommy Lewis over there in Kinston, North Carolina, who becomes one of God's great men going all over this area, murdering the king's English. And yet the Spirit of God flowing through him. I tell you something inside of me stands up and says, Hallelujah, man, go to it. God's doing things like that with people, looking for people who are willing to do the impossible. In Matthew 18, verse 33, Jesus gives the whole secret to this, for he says, Verily I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Have you ever wondered what it was that gave David the courage to stand out there on that hillside and shout at that giant over on the mountainside and say, Goliath, I dare you, you chicken-livered giant. Come on. Take me on. Wow. Ah, here's a 14-year-old kid out there with a slingshot shouting at the giants. You know what it was? It's because he was a little boy. Here's King Saul. See, he knows the ways of the military. He knows there are some things that are possible and some things that are impossible. But David doesn't know that. All he knows is that he's got the voice of God that says, come on, kid, take him on. You and me, we'll handle him, see. Come on. And that's the thing that gives him that brass to go out there and say, come on, man, bring your sword. Like that. David picked up five rocks and only needed one of them. Hallelujah. I don't know what those other four were for. In case Goliath had brothers, I guess, he was going to use them on them. 
Well, hallelujah. I tell you, my heart sings over that. I don't want to grow up. I don't want to become crusty and sophisticated to where my logic demands that there are things that can be done and things that can't be done. I want my heart to stay as a little child that says, I don't care what kind of Goliath comes my way. I've got a stone and I've got the rock. Hallelujah. And that's all I need. Some of you were in Charlotte several weeks ago and heard me tell the story of what happened in the Philippines. And we were over there, and I talked with, um, talked with Ali Gonzalez, who's got this beautiful, beautiful ministry down there on the island of Mindanao, just a poor little preacher, and really believing that God's going to do an impossible thing, and God is doing an impossible thing. They're, they're training pastors and sending them out into areas to where they've never had a gospel witness, and some of those pastors are 16-year-old girls because nobody else will go. And those teenage girls are going out and they're witnessing house to house and they're forming churches and people are being saved all through that area because they dare to do the impossible. We were down a little place called San Jose and Ali Gonzalez says, I want you to meet somebody. He took me around and met, introduced me to a, to a, a little eight-year-old boy, a little tiny, brown-skinned, shy, bashful kid. And he says, this kid has been, has been used of God down here in a way that you'd never believe. And then he told me the story of how this little kid, very, very poor, no money at all whatsoever. Nobody there has any money. I mean, they don't have anything. They don't have any coins or anything. Everything is, is done in barter or if they're able to go out and sell something while they can do it. Uh, that the, the nearest civilization is about 30 miles from there, and that's by boat because there's no way to even get up over the mountain to walk. And so everything is handled by boat. They go out in the South China Sea and they come around to to another little port and there was a school that had been started in this particular area a government school that had been started and this little kid was in the was in the second grade and he was so poor that he didn't have enough money to buy paper or pencil they just didn't have it and he had been sitting in class and they had been uh, looking at the government textbook that they had and then it came time for the examination and he didn't have paper or pencil None at all. And all the other kids somehow had been able to scrounge around and get a piece of paper of some kind, a little stub of a pencil, so that they could take the examination. And this little kid didn't, didn't have any paper or pencil. And finally somebody gave him uh, a green piece of paper about like this with lines on it. Somebody had an extra piece. But he still didn't have a pencil. And uh, came the morning for the examination, and he came to school, and and he couldn't go in to take the exam. And the teacher made him stay outside, and he was weeping. And just about two weeks before, he had become a Christian. And so he said, well, I'll sit here on the steps, and I'll talk to my father about this situation. This is a very bad situation, because I want to go to school, and <laughs> I want to take the exam, and I don't have a pencil. And so he sat there on the steps, and he said, Father, I don't have a pencil and I want to take the exam. Could you give me a pencil? See, the nearest pencil is 30 miles away. <laughs> and as he was sitting there, praying, crying, talking with the Lord, he 
rolled the paper up like a little kid will do and was sitting there kind of rolling it in his hands like this. And as he was rolling it, he felt something hard on the inside of it. And he opened it up. And there's a brand new yellow pencil with a big eraser on the end, already sharpened, ready to take the exam. So he goes running into the school, waving his pencil and waving his paper. And he breaks the school up, see, because they know that he didn't have a pencil. They knew there was no place for him to get it. And even if he found one, it had been an old grubby pencil that somebody had chewed the eraser off of. See, this is a brand new yellow pencil with an eraser. Well, he took his exam. Allie Gonzalez showed me the pencil. Little boy brought it to Allie, who was his pastor. Showed me the pencil. Doesn't have any writing on it. It looks just like a regular yellow pencil. Sharpened in, rubber eraser on the end, the whole thing. And he said, there was no way. They just don't have pencils like this in all of Mindanao. They've got them up in Manila. But there's no place that he could have gotten this pencil except from God. And he says, let me tell you what's happened over the last three years. He says, there's been a thousand people come to Jesus Christ because of that yellow pencil. Hallelujah. <laughs> Now, can you understand what Jesus is saying when he says, except you become converted as a little child, you'll not enter into the kingdom of heaven? I can't picture myself sitting out there on the steps asking God to give me a pencil. I would have, uh, I'd have had all kinds of schemes as to how to get one. I'd have formed a committee. <laughs> Or I'd have taken out a loan or done something. No, he just says, Father, I need a pencil. And the father, because he's a great and generous and loving father, says, here's one of my children who doesn't have a pencil. Come on, Gabe, how about going down there and getting him one? See? I'm excited about that. I'm excited about men and women who become as little children and attempt the impossible for the glory of God. I got a great friend of mine, Martin Sweets, from Louisville, Kentucky. Martin has told me the secret of how he has built his, uh, his business into a multi-million dollar concern. And he said that the, the secret of this was that he learned, the, he learned the difference between that which was urgent and that which was important. And you see, one of the reasons that I seldom attain the impossible in my life is because I haven't learned this difference yet. I haven't learned the difference between the, between the urgent and the important. Uh, it's the important things that I should be giving priority to. Peter says, with diligence. With discipline, there are things that God wants you to do in your life, and Satan will hammer you to death with the urgent things which will keep you from ever getting around to the important. 
And so one of the reasons that I have great difficulty attaining the goals that God has given to me is that I'm unable to give priority to the important things that God has said. And I spend my time oiling the squeaky wheels of the urgent matters that just won't wait. Jesus knew how to distinguish between the urgent and the important. You remember that situation in John 11 where Mary and Martha send to Jesus and say, Our brother is dying. Please come right now, quickly. And Jesus waits three days before he shows up. And when he gets there, Lazarus is not only dead, he's buried. They've already put him in the ground. And he, and he risks the wrath and the ire of his dear friends who have said, oh, if you had only come when we told you to come. And Jesus said, I've got to do what the Father tells me to do. I can't be pushed here and yon by my friends, even my dear friends. I do only that which the Father buried at seven. But there's no place that he This was like this in all of Mindanao. They've got him up.